Welcome to our night talk conversation with uh, the First Lady, Her Excellency Madame Tobega Madiba Zuma. So just to start, the correct title in addressing the First Lady, what is the protocol in addressing the First Lady, <laughs> if any? Well, I, it depends how you qualify that. I think also it influences by the environment where you are. So I'm, I'm easy at home. I could never be called first lady, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of when I'm, um, you know, undertaking my official spousal duties, it would be um, the spouse of the president or uh, Madame Zuma. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Because from the interviews I've seen in preparing for today, I think you are not too fussed about the title. Uh, you say your staff call you Madame, but you don't mind too much what title is used to refer to you. Absolutely, because I think for me it makes no difference as long as one was taught respect at home on how to refer to the elders. That is all mm. you know, that matters to me. Do you find that there's a lot of anxiety about meeting the First Lady and how to address and how to, you know... Uh, you know, the protocol and hosting you, and do you find that there's a lot of anxiety about that? Because you are, you know, a senior public figure, the spouse of the first citizen. So I think there might be a little bit of anxiety about how do we approach this? How do we make sure we don't get it wrong? <laughs> do people get anxious? I suppose if they're meeting me for the first time, you, sometimes I do pick up that, you know, level or degree of anxiety. But mm-hmm. I think once, you know, we've met, you know, if it's the sec- second time around that I meet those people, it's always easy and, you know, I, I, I never pick up any anxiety whatsoever. Mm. So what is the role of the First Lady? Um, I think it's one of the positions we know of, but we know very little about it. So what are the official duties of the spouse to the state president? Uh, it's actually a position that does not have any executive powers um, attached to it. However, um, by virtue of having that close proximity to the executive seat, being the president, um, comes with it other responsibilities which would be in the event that the president has to travel an official state visit or incoming state visits, um, hosting their counterparts that some would come with their spouses as well. So essentially... As a spouse, you would connect with the other spouse while they're carrying on with their official um, uh, duties. But apart from that, I think the role has evolved in that it has moved away from, you know, the ceremonial role and, and, and that of just, you know, you would be there and, and not playing a meaningful role mm. um, to that of us realizing that, you know what, as much as we don't have the executive powers, but we hold the, or rather we are placed in a unique position of influence. We are able to influence things on a bigger scale, influence uh, policy, you know, um, advocate, you know, for those that uh, cannot speak for themselves, you know, for their rights. It It depends also on the cause that you've chosen as an individual. Um, and is how you see fit and I think also the importance is passion it has to come with passion because if the passion is not there it shows in everything you do Mm. so your background is as a banker or in banking Mm -hmm. but you've now chosen when you speak of passion your passion is public health uh, particularly as it affects uh, young women uh, and women in general Mm -hmm. 
So how did you choose this passion and was it always a passion of yours? Cause I, and, I, and, and perhaps the follow-on question is, did you ever imagine you would be the first lady of a country? I'll tackle the first one, which is um, the background, being finance and, and uh, coming from the, the banking environment uh, and also uh, backed by the uh, you know, academic qualification, which is finance and nature. My view and the reason why I think the two are related, and funny enough, yesterday I was just reading um, you know, the views about what comes best. In, in a human being, is it health, is it family, is it work, and it happens to be health, because you know um, how they articulated what I was reading was that you cannot work if you're not healthy, mm. you know you cannot be there for your family if you're not healthy, you cannot be successful and you know enjoy life if you're not healthy. So for me, I think it, I was informed by that, the fact that, you know, as much as we want to see our economy um, grow as a, a developing country, or a third world country, if you want to call, call us that, um, we have to hel- have a healthy population, you know, and, and, and that translates to a healthy workforce. And in that way, if we have a healthy workforce, we have got people that are at work, working and, you know, contributing to the economic growth of our country. So that is why I felt it has to be health. Mm-hmm. Uh, but besides that, you know, looking around and I felt that, you know, the majority of, of the female population um, is such that they put themselves last on the list of priorities. Mm-hmm. And looking at each and every agenda that talks to development, it left women behind. Yeah. And that for me was a disturbing factor and I felt, you know what, um, you know, we, we needed more people that were visible in society and in our communities to really um, try and push the agenda of, of women featuring at the top of each agenda because they're a very important part of the population. You know, we, we've grown up, everything was about men and not the girl children or a woman. Yet when those people are no longer there and their lives have been claimed by these diseases that were really ravishing our communities, you know, the home will never function properly and so does it affect, you know, society. It just have that has that effect, um, a ripple effect, negative in, in nature. So it, it is important and it was important for me to say, you know what, let me, not the only one, but joining other people that were already there in the forefront championing for these causes and also, you know, advocating for women to be at the center of everything. Second question that you asked me are whether one, you can never know. You can never know what life prepares you for until you arrive at the destination and you thought, okay, this is what, you know, probably why I went through all these trials and tribulations. Life was preparing me, yes, for this. So, I, I never imagined, um, although I knew growing up, I, I was the type that would not settle for less, put it that way, because even before 1994, I was the one who would question things, who would ask, what, you know, why things are done in this way, why is it that, you know, there are departments within the banking um, uh, industrial sector that do not feature black people. I had a problem with that. And as a result, through asking questions, but not only asking questions, doing something about myself in terms of bettering myself, 
getting educated because I knew that education was key. Mm -hmm. If anything else, educa education was going to liberate us mm -hmm. from from what we were going through as black people then, before 1994. So I, I, I focused on education and I was one of the few back then, even before 1994, that was selected um, to go on a career development uh, program. Is that the accelerated yes, development program? Yes, yes, that was uh, aimed at trying to close the gap that existed um, within you know, the, the, the banking sector. So if you look at where we are now, so you were one of the first, or you know, a crop of, or part of the crop of young black professionals who were kind of, you know, part of the accelerated development program, uh, who were, you know, making careers, building careers in the financial and the, the banking sector. Looking at it now, how much has changed since you were in the space? I mean, you haven't been in the banking sector mm, for almost a mm, decade, mm. but since the time you were in, how much? Have we moved forward? Have we have we made progress? Mm, a lot has changed, and um, that is reflected on when you even look at the makeup of now what constitutes, for instance, um, the manager's department, which is one of the elite in the bank. You can see black people there, and um, also uh, what has changed is is the manner in which it's done. It's no longer about window dressing because in the beginning back then when we were there, you could almost sense that this is not sincere. You know, this is, you know... Not having uh, me here. Yes, and also, you know, this person is doing it under, I, I would say, is not... It's not out of their own will. Mm. They I are forced to. by the circumstances. They can see that things are changing and they are forced to actually also change um, the way they do things. So back then it was difficult. You know, you would get a file, for instance, you have to complete it and it has to go to the uh, advance and um, loans department that would handle millions. And that file wouldn't be complete. You could see that it has been photocopied and some of the information is missing. So we had those battles back then, but we overcame because mm -hmm. that was supported by the fact that one was ensuring that, you know, I'm getting educated. I'm going to overcome this. So it's different now. The financial sector is one of the places that still seems very, I guess, mysterious for a lot of people. We know about it. We know it's important. But there's, I mean, when we speak about financial literacy, how do we bridge that gap between what I think is a very important sector and how the majority of South Africans think they relate to it or they, they not their interest in it, but the, the kind of impact that sector has? Because I think it's, it's a very important one and we speak about it quite mm. often. But I think for many people, there's a, a disconnect. I don't know how this impacts me or why it is important. How do we, what causes that gap, but also how do we then bridge it? Because I think it's important to do that. Um, especially when we speak about you know, getting people involved in the sector, empowering people, transforming the sector. But we need to get people invested um, mm. uh, and knowing about it. Yes, I, I guess for me, the one thing that I've always said and I've, I would like to re-emphasize is um, the importance of um, the government regulating the industry that the industry is, is such that um, it embraces, you know, all the races. It embraces the poor, the middle um, class, and also the higher income earners. And um, if, if, if that does happen, then we could easily say then that we would be able to see 
transformation in, in the financial sector and in an inclusive way that, you know, the poor, it's not just about if they go to the bank, they go into the bank just to transact, to put money in, to take it out. That's it. They know nothing about even the bank charges that go through. Um, nobody's even interested to ensure that, um, you know, it's inclusive. And I think for me to take it one step further, what has been a big concern for me is for our up and coming um, uh, small um, enterprises, um, the, the, the entrepreneurs are still finding it difficult to access finance, in especially the banking sector. You know, it's, it hasn't transformed. A, and that is one of the reasons why we're not seeing significant um, change and improvement in our people, you know, being encouraged to start their own businesses because it's one of the things that need to happen in order to address unemployment. We need our people, while they're still young, having completed their degrees, to go straight and become entrepreneurs. Because if they get employed, the danger that we, we will see is them now getting trapped in, in this vicious cycle that when, once they've, they, they're employed, they're going to earn a salary, they're going to buy a car, they're going to buy property, and that's it. They will not be able to now get out because they cannot risk losing these because they, these are not obliga- financial obligations that you can postpone and say, you wait for me while I'm starting a business, trying it out, how long is it going to take? There the are no guarantees. Yes. And so therefore, I would like to see the, the financial sector, especially the banking sector transforming and being inclusive and changing the way they do things in terms of even the criteria because the criteria is such that if you don't have security that's it but a black child where do they get security because they did not inherit anything from their grandparents they under pressure they need to earn an income because they've just finished school they need to be employed so it really makes it that difficult for them to have access to capital to start their own businesses. So I, I think government is doing something towards that, but I, I wish the pace could be a bit faster. Mm. If you've just joined us, we're speaking to the First Lady, Madame Tobega Madiba Zuma, streaming this live on the 702 and EWN Lifestyle pages on Facebook. You can also join the conversation via our hashtag, hashtag Night Talk First Lady. If you have questions for the First Lady, we'll try and get to those a little bit later on. So on to the uh, TMZ Foundation, the Tobega Madiba Zuma Foundation, which has got quite a broad public health focus, specifically looking at uh, women and girls. And you touched a little bit earlier on in the importance to look after women and girls. And in the last couple of years, we've seen, certainly under the leadership of Dr. Aaron Mozzoledi, a bigger focus on lifestyle and how that can impact the health of communities, the country, our workforce, our productivity. But there's been a little bit of, I don't know if that message is landing, because he's really talking about things which are important, but for many people we've thought, you know, looking after yourself was a luxury or eating well was a luxury or it's expensive or exercising was I need a gym membership or I need Mm. um, you know so there's there's almost a a slow but a shift in the way in which we're speaking about public health and particularly about uh, lifestyle and we hear a lot about the health of our country lifestyle diseases Mm. why are we so unhealthy why are we so burdened um, with uh, I guess, broadly, a society that's just not 
Wow. Wow. <laughs> there, are many, there are many answers to that question. I think for me it ranges from also the, let me address the issue of lifestyles and uh, in relation to these lifestyle diseases. We've come to a realization that, you know, having borrowed, you know, I would say, talk about us as Africans, having borrowed the modernized way of doing things, and one of them is our eating habits, has placed us in a position whereby I would say it puts us at risk of getting these diseases, and these diseases being lifestyle diseases. So it was therefore important for, you know, I think our government or Department of Health to then highlight the importance of, of, of ensuring that our people are becoming aware about these diseases and why, uh, what places their lives at risk mm-hmm. of getting the diseases. And um, growing up, you know, I always make an example about myself. All I knew was that because of poverty, was that I would eat pap, and in that plate uh, there would be potatoes, and in that plate there would be, if it's not potatoes cooked with, um, you know, the stew or curry, there would also be a potato salad and egg. I don't know if you can relate to that. I'm mm-hmm. not sure of your age, but <laughs> that is how we grew up mm-hmm. eating. You know, eating habits were problematic and are still problematic now because if I grew up having access to lettuce, cucumber, Tomatoes, spinach, and oh. yes, um, you know, uh, healthy, you know, these healthy um, uh, uh, foods, um, you know, it would have been different. But also, there's another argument, counter argument to say, but our parents were not so um, prone to these diseases because what did they do? They ate straight from the garden. So they, they would eat vegetables, you know, everything was fresh. You know, and 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 went consuming too much of um, genetically modified foods. We would eat. They would eat um, homegrown uh, chickens, which now we call them organic. Um, <laughs> yes, these fancy names. But hard body. Yeah, but the fact remains is that they also remained very active. You know, going to the garden, planting vegetables and planting whatever else. So they kept themselves, you know, busy and in a way that was a form of exercise. And currently, working people, working class, all that you know, we, we see and, and people do is they wake up in the morning, there's no time to prepare healthy food, so it's all rushed, and it's also the type of food that we eat and consume, um, genetically modified, and you know, it's quick, fast foods. So that is why we, we see a problem now when it comes to eating the foods that is not, I mean, the food that is not um, home, I mean, ho- food that is not uh, from the garden, straight from the garden, you get frozen uh, food. Mm-hmm. The, the, the chickens, you know, seeing a chicken, it's born today, tomorrow it's in the market, it's being sold. So I think for me, it's a, there are a variety of uh, many reasons why we, we see the focus being on promoting healthy lifestyle to say oh stop let's halt this let's look at the way we eat are we exercising and a lot of people are smoking and uh, which predisposes them to getting these diseases uh, abuse of alcohol 
which by the way, when I talk to people, I always say it's not about just taking the whole bottle and gobbling it. No, it's two classes. You're already in that space where you are deemed to be abusing alcohol mm-hmm. or taking excessive alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, the focus is now on healthy living, promoting healthy living, because it's the only way we can do something about preventing the onset of these diseases. Um, but also that is coupled with early screening and, and, and other things. But it's important that our, because in our country, the, the I mean, obesity is not only on the rise, it is hit alarming levels. Mm-hmm. Because we see it in children, we see it in, in our youth, we see it in Men older people. Who, who, you know, yesterday I was watching this program. Um, how did I get to, what, 600 LB? And I had it on when when it's supper time, I have it on. And then my daughter was like, Mom, I'm not going to eat. I was like, what is wrong? Because she was 600 pounds. Like, no, Mom, I've just seen that. I'm feeling ill. We need to try and ensure that we now instill the culture to our kids to say we need to eat healthy. But also don't only say it. You know, you need to lead by example. example. As parents, we need to know what is there in those lunch boxes. You know, we need to ensure that as a collective, we also work with the schools because I worry about what they sell in those tuck shops. You know, I've, I've gone as far as ensuring that what do they sell in the tuck shops? And I get my daughters to explain to me, count. And then on Friday, they say, Mom, we don't need any tuck money. Why? Because they sell junk. And then, okay, I... I I would be comfortable and I, I get comfortable knowing that the message is there. Mm-hmm. They know that it's junk, it, it's a no-no. But how many other kids, you know, do not have the opportunity to be educated by their parents about what do they buy in those tuck shops? So it will take a collective effort, you know, to, to work towards ensuring that we have a society that is very conscious about what they eat, how much, because it's also how much of the food you consume. Every now and then, as much as I'm disciplined, the wheels will fall off. But it doesn't mean that I must just have the whole slab of, of chocolate because I'm deriving nothing from there. So moderation. Yes. But also, the, the Department of Health has to work very closely with the NGOs, NPOs, to ensure that there's no gap between the beneficiary or the recipient of the information as well as the Department of Health. That we, you know, these NGOs work with people at a grassroots level. So we ensure that when we work with our people, we package the messages that they suit the type of you know, people that you're talking to. Of course, when you're talking to the youth, it will be different. When you're talking to the older people, it will be different. And then children as well, role model, their ways of ensuring that we get the message out there. So the message is important and I agree, but what do we do with a country where economics are also I guess a big factor in our public health. Um, so we know something like 30 million people are considered poor or live poor, which then means their diet would be poor, they'd be time poor, they'd be sleep poor, because poverty is more than just about mm. money. It's mm. also about time, quality of life, mm. etc. Mm. So how do we then, because then that almost makes the problem a little bit trickier in that mm. we must also deal with the, the factor of economics and particularly with women uh, women for early detection for instance of breast cancer various cancers detection is very important but mm. often we don't get early detection right because you know i can't access 
a clinic or I can't mm. access my nearest uh, facility. Mm. So economics then becomes quite a big factor as well. Mm. I agree with you. And that is why we also, for us, champion and advocate for the services to be taken to our people. Because we know that out-of-pocket costs, um, they then get in the way of that influence that decision. Whether I'm going to go to the clinic, because you have to travel to the clinic. Whether I'm going to go to that academic hospital, now that I'm discovered that there's a query about the smear, the pep smear that was done on my breast. Um, I need to go to the city. What do I do? Competing priorities, food versus that money, school shoes for my children versus the money that I was going to use. So we see that every day, and that remains a big problem. But the solution to that is, is, is twofold, is ensuring that you know, our people are empowered economically, that they earn you know, money to be able to do that with services taken to our people. But also, I always say, there isn't, we shouldn't find it as an excuse in the rural areas to say um, our people cannot access good food. Because I've just said in the beginning that you know, wherever I was, there was a garden. Our people need to be empowered with knowledge, but not only there. For instance, I see Department of Health working very closely with the Department of Agriculture um, to empower people with knowledge that you're sitting with the free resource behind, you know, at your backyard. Use it to plant vegetables, no matter how small, share it with the neighbor. And once you share it with the neighbor, you can then be able to take even those vegetables once you've, you're finished consuming them in the household. And the department should assist our people to have access to the markets to be able to sell those vegetables and how to preserve them you know um the produce so that they are able to sell them to the markets or even if it's stock if it's chickens or whatever it is and once they have access to the markets then they can earn you know um an income and a living to be able to say i don't have to have these competing priorities if i need to go to the clinic i'll be go to able to go to the clinic and get screened and all sorts so i think for me, instead of working in silos, I would like to see those departments working very closely because they will provide the solution. And even at schools, we've seen how the gardens are being promoted now to have the gardens in schools so that our children are also taught on how to plant the plant vegetables and how to then preserve them and how to then you know have access to food because we have soup kitchens in the schools mm -hmm. and in the in the schools they would then get the very vegetables fresh from the gardens at school i mean the churches have got a role to play i think each and every individual has got a role to play as long as we know how to work as a collective for the benefits of our poor mm -hmm. So the, back to the foundation. So the work that the foundation does, so on one hand, it's about awareness and advocacy, mm. uh, also encouraging or assisting women to get screened, that you know, early detection being quite a big thing. Mm -hmm. um, and your work's also been recognized by a variety of uh, organizations. I think it was Forbes a couple of years ago that recognized you, the UN as an advocate for uh, women and children as a health advocate. So the work, and you say the work of the foundation keeps you quite busy. Mm. So what, uh, what else does the foundation uh, actually do? Sure, it does a whole lot of things. We as the foundation chose to focus on, on four 
pioneer programs, and those translate to four diseases. Okay. And it will be um, ana cancer, breast and cervical cancer, because those are female cancers, as well as because of the strong relationship now that exists between the, the cancers and, and HIV, AIDS, and TB. We chose to then also include those two. And what we do, as you said, is to also cre- is to create awareness is to advocate for our people to have access to screening services, to treatment on time, to, um, to, to care and support, which is an important com- component. Because once you are told that you've got breast cancer, you look around for support and think, besides my family, who else can I you know, call upon to walk the journey with me? Or in the event that I'm told, when I go to the hospital that, you know what, yeah, the waiting period is six months, mm-hmm. but I already need this help because six months is, is actually a long time when you're told that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, you know, um, champion for access um, to palliative care because some people um, would think once the person is terminally ill, that's it. They must go back home, die right. in that bed, painful deaths. So we work very closely with those organizations that provide such services um, in our country. But also it doesn't stop the, the need to influence policy that it favors our women, girls, and children. Uh, I'll give you an example um, of that. Is, is, is take, for instance, a woman who is HIV positive. That woman doesn't need to wait to be screened at age 30, 40, and, and 50 as it would wear as it would be under normal circumstances. But that woman already is HIV positive, which means she's five times at risk of getting cervical cancer because the human papilloma virus that causes cervical cancer is sexually transmitted. So if she's five times at risk, she shouldn't wait until she, until she reaches age 30 if she's 20 or 22. So we, we see our position of, of, of uh, our unique position of influence also at proximity to advocate for these um, problems that our women and children are faced with. And we use that proximity to say, hold on a second, can we now talk about our women? You know, proximity to power, to the president, for instance, I don't make an appointment to see him and talk about these issues that are affecting our women. So they, we, we take the services as well, as I said, that they, they, the NPOs and NGOs are working very closely with our people at a grassroots level. So we take these services, dovetail them to what in our communities and in the rural areas would be termed or called Izimbizo, mm-hmm. where our people come together and they are called or invited by the local municipalities to say, let's add then our services, let's educate, use that opportunity to educate our people about these diseases. But we don't stop there. We partner also with the Department of Health to say, we don't have the screening services, mobile screening services, but Department of Health will be going to um, um, Klatuza or we would be going to Kwaswaimani um, or wherever you know these imbizos are. Uh, can you come partner with us? Bring all your screening services. We're not going to marginalize our screening services to only um, uh, um, cervical cancer or, or, or breast cancer. The problem is too big. Mm-hmm. We cannot divide a woman. Bring everything that you can. Whether it's HIV, they bring that and we get our people diabetes, hypertension. Let us just take a holistic view when we look at these challenges because that opportunity should not be missed of screening that woman. Mm.
So you say you, I guess you are in a, a unique position as the first lady, and you so you don't need to make an appointment with the president. Um, are there other issues that you use that proximity to raise with uh, the president? So, of course, public health, women is a big one. Are there other issues that you say, you know, this is uh, an issue, why don't we, you know, do A, B, and C? And, and when you raise them with the president, I mean, so do you make policy suggestions? Do you, um, you know, say this is a, a particular challenge? I mean, so how do you raise them with the, the president? I use every opportunity that is, that is there um, to actually discuss the issues that, you know, as I said, are close to my heart. And um, for me, those are priority. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not there on the agenda. But for me, it's a, it's a question of are they getting the attention, you know, which they deserve. And of course, uh, as much as, you know, our government is there with our people, but there are other things, you know, they're competing priorities that are before them. And for instance, with the Department of Health, there are so many competing priorities, you know, before the Minister of Health to say, what do I do in this case? Do I focus on, you know, what... The, the spouses of the presidents when they get together in New York or wherever uh, that that I must you know invest in in providing um, vaccination for instance I'll take that I'll use that as, as an example um, a vaccination for the human papillomavirus what do I do um, but the benefits I'll only see those benefits you know 15 years down the line but I've got you know people that are dying of HIV AIDS and dying every single day in numbers. Um, but if you highlight the benefits and sell the benefits, as much as the minister is faced with those competing priorities, if you highlight those benefits and say, at least if we can have that percentage of a population of young girls that in the near future we know they will be safe from getting cervical cancer, is bound to listen, and he has. Mm -hmm. And we saw it in 2014 when... Um, nearly 420,000 girls were vaccinated in our, our, our public schools. And for me, that was a milestone. That was one of the things that we'd been championing for. Cannot take the credit alone for that because with the other organizations, you know, we worked as a collective to say we need to see our young girls be vac being vaccinated. And 2015, also, the numbers just increased. Mm -hmm. And for me, it gives me a sense of comfort knowing that, you know what, we have a government that has an ear that listens to our problems and that also is willing to, to work with us in, as, as partners. Mm. The Department of Women was, I remember when it was created a couple of years ago, was considered as perhaps one of the ways in which we start championing particular challenges that face women. Mm. And very often that means the particular experience of socioeconomic challenges of the country. So we know mm. the face of poverty in this country is mm. female. Mm. Uh, the face of uh, HIV and AIDS, certainly the new infections is young mm. and female. Mm. But there's also a concern about whether, you know, where the, the department fits in as an enabler, as a, as a, a champion, as a coordinator. And there's, you know, and from your perspective, where does the department fit in because often there's a I guess a great sense of frustration some people uh, a, a sense of anger about we have this department but it doesn't seem to be this champion for women when so many issues are about women actually so certainly our big issues are about women so I think it would be difficult to 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 answer for um 
for for the department, but um, if that is the sense and um, the frustration um, that is expressed by our people, it can't be taken for granted. It would be something that would need to be, you know, looked at. And, um, you know, I I suppose also one of the reasons why they might say the, the, the probably some of the people aren't happy, you can't please everyone. But that being said, um, it also depends on the amount and, you know, the amount of problems that they inherited. Um, because I would want to believe that in that department, it's not only women, I think they're children as well, and uh, people with disabilities. So inheriting that and the department being a new department, because it's, it's not that old, um, I would say it's probably making its baby steps, you know, towards... Uh, uh, ensuring that it covers you know a wide spectrum of problems that it found on the ground mm-hmm. from the time or from when it was formed but I, I i want to believe that i've seen that it's there and um it does champion the issues that are affecting women but as i said the problem that i i identified also within government is also working in silos and not working, harmonizing and, and working together, you know, as one, as a collective, because I think it's only then, because no singular sector can solve the problems. It would take, you know, various departments, also depending on what is the common denominator, you know, what what cause are they specifically championing? So if you're talking about health, you know, that health also has roped in has to be the Department of Health, of Education, because, you know, some of these vaccinations are implemented at that level, which is the case. You know, Department of Education is working very closely with the Department of Health. But I think for me, if that is uh, that outcry out there, it would be something that I, you know, as an ordinary citizen and also working in the NPO space, that I would like to also bring to the attention of the ministry to say, this is what has been brought to my attention is it what you're getting? Because I would imagine that they also, as the department, would do their monitoring and evaluation of their programs to, to get a sense of are they impactful? Are they reaching the intended beneficiary? And are they, um, you know, positives? Are they, are they gaining anything out of, you know, any, any I think, organization would have to have that, those checks to say, am I impactful? If so, how much? You know, the program, is it, the, you know, has a concept note in achieving the outcomes and the objectives of the program. So the programs that fall within the department or ministry of women, um, I, I would want to believe that they also have those checks as to whether or not uh, they are impactful. But I've taken stock of that, if that is the feeling, um, or there's an outcry for the Department of Women being seen or felt that it's not reaching out as it should. Do you find that a lot of people bring that kind of concern to you? Because like you mentioned earlier, you do have proximity. Mm. Do people perhaps use the opportunity to say, you know, First Lady, there's this issue? Yes, definitely. And it might not be perhaps the focus of the foundation, but people say, Mm. please, there is this issue and it's about, you know, education or anything. Yes, no, definitely every day. I mean, (laughs) we're inundated with emails, with phone calls coming through, people asking for intervention. But what we do is we work very closely, for instance, with the Department of Social Development. So if we come across an issue where there are 11 kids whose mom, dad, 
they've died or died long time ago and they're living in a shack and in a uh, I mean, environment where you feel no human being should be living under those circumstances, we definitely raise a red flag and we follow it through until completion mm-hmm. and uh, until the end. But also, you know, I would like to also draw the attention of, of our citizens to the fact that government cannot be the only uh, problem solving, you know, um, uh, you know, person that we look up to or establishment that we look up to, private sector has got to play its its role. I also have an issue when it comes to health with the private sector. I don't think it's playing the role it should, given the fact that they expect, you know, to as a beneficiary to have a healthy worker. Mm-hmm. And I think they need to contribute towards ensuring that we strengthen prevention in our country because the time has come for us to say these diseases that were previously referred to as, as, as uh, or deemed to be uh, public health threats, they're now no longer um, uh, regarded or classified as such. We've got them under control. We've combated them, um, like, for instance, HIV, AIDS. Um, but what do we do about, about prevention being better than cure? Mm-hmm. How do we also contribute you know, and help government ensure that we prevent the onset of these diseases when we know what needs to be done. And I find that, you know, private sector has to also, you know, play its part in that regard. What would that role look like? Because, I mean, the private sector comes up quite often, and I think a lot of the criticism about the private sector is fair, that they don't play as a bigger role as they could say in education, even mm. though they are a direct, you know, for, if education works, the private mm. sector benefits. Mm. If public health works mm. and we have a healthier population, the private sector benefits. If mm-hmm. we deal with issues of inequality and poverty, the economy benefits, private sector benefits, you know, if, 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 we, if a large part of the population wins, we all win. Mm. So what kind of role would you want them to see, do you want to see them play? You know, what would be a, a better or more active role in particularly with regards to, to public health? Because mm. I think you are correct. In many instances, the sector isn't playing enough Sometimes they feel they're doing the work of government or they step in where government isn't doing its work. But what would that role look like if they were to be a better collaborator or partner? Mm. I think it's, it's, it, it, it talks into their, um, their contribution, mm-hmm. their financial contribution uh, within the CSI. Um, I find it a problem where you'd find that, um, you know, a company or an organization, you know, would choose something because charity begins at home and, and, and contributing you first with start with the community because the same community that where you find people to work for you are also uh, end consumers. They, they're going to consume your product mm-hmm. and therefore you are expected to give back to the community. I'll take an example again to make this a bit more practical um, of of Casa uh, Lager or those that sell alcohol. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what are they contributing back to society? Mm-hmm. It's what I would like to see. Mm-hmm. Those that sell um, uh, uh, cigarettes, what do they contribute back to society? I mean, the Department of Western Cape has raised because they're trying to deal with alcohol abuse and yes. substance abuse, saying they'd like to see uh, alcohol manufacturers play a more active role mm-hmm. in awareness, teaching mm-hmm. people about mm-hmm. uh, alcohol addiction and dependence, binge drinking, which you know is a big challenge, 
So, I mean, they are, I mean, at a provincial level, certainly I think the Western Cape being quite clear to say there's an opportunity there. I would say there's an opportunity at a national level, not only marginalised to only the one province or two provinces. There is a, you know, there's so much to be done in that area. And um, for me, you know, you knock, you know, at, at, at their doors, but they're closed often. And I attended the CSI um, conference um, in, um, here in Jobek. A giving back and attaching a meaning to giving back and not just, you know, the check, we've issued a check, that's it, uh, we're contributing, we're donating, that's the end of it, we've done our bits. I think for me the time has come to not only just issue that check, contributing. Is it going to sustain me to just get once a once-off check from a company to say I'm contributing towards your awareness campaign or whatever the case is and that's it don't come back to me again mm-hmm. so that there's a problem there but then how, how do you convince business that they have a bigger role to play because they could say even the check is not really my core business i know you know are the king three uh, values say you know it's about profit people but also planets so it's more mm-hmm. than just about making money mm-hmm. but you still need to convince business and particularly if they are writing the check already to say there should be more how, how do you how do you do how do you convince businesses particularly if they're feeling like i'm already doing quite a lot how do you convince them that they must be more than the check i think the issue me for me is exactly where you're saying how do you convince why should they be convinced they should see the need they should see the need to partner and partner in a meaningful way that is going to sustain whatever cost. We're not saying that, you know, they should be prescribed to as to which cost they need to be involved in, but they should choose what is in appetizing for them, what is in line with their belief of giving back to society in a sustainable way, in an empowering way, in a way that reflects the fact that I appreciate that you are my customer, you are the reason why I'm a alive and still in business but also you are my employee because then the minute we start investing more in 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 employees well-being or health that's when we will see productivity go up that's when we will also see you know um you know businesses growing because you should go to the hospitals, Google. You should go to, for instance, we've been to Charlotte Matlake Hospital. People are sick lying in hospitals. And it bothers me because I'm thinking, hold on a second. If this hospital is filled to capacity and even more, yes, it's a referral hospital for greater Gauteng. But who is at work? Mm-hmm. It, it bothers me. So I, I have a, an issue with convincing. They shouldn't be convinced. We shouldn't be working on convincing any NGO or NPO working in that space where that particular company has an appetite to give back to society should not be convinced. So, but then that speaks to the reason why we need to convince. I know you say we shouldn't have to convince, Mm -hmm. and I think we refer to them as social partners because we're all in this together, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is we do need to convince certainly the private sector perhaps even civil society in some instances, even the members of the public, that there must be a collective effort. 
and a lot of that has to do with concerns around service delivery, mm -hmm. concerns around um, uh, maladministration, etc. So how do we, because we must build a public trust to create a social contract, right? That's, that's what makes that contract work. That's how you don't convince people is there's, is there's trust. I know that as a partner, my role is important, but also this is for all of us. How do we begin to do that? Because, I mean, part of the reasons why we have NPOs is because the need is so great, mm -hmm. because the challenges are so great, and we, you know, we need to plug all of these issues. So how do we begin to then, if we're going to have this contract, where do we start? But with the NPO space, you know, the minute you say, I'm going to invest, I believe in what you do, I'm going to invest in your programs, there is a monitoring and evaluation to say, am I just not throwing my money into, you know, some dark hole where I'm not going to, or I don't stand to benefit. Mm. And also it shouldn't be who is behind that NPO or NGO. I think for me it, it, should, it, so should. it shouldn't matter that it is... Absolutely, because I'm, I'm, I'm the same as Pink Drive or whoever else that is in the space whereby we need resources. We've got these amazing programs that um, are, are going to be impactful, that are tailor-made to suit, you know, if it's youth, to influence their behavioral ways in engaging in unsafe sex or whatever other things that we do or offer or programs that are um, aimed at, you know, raising awareness or campaigns about breast cancer or cervical cancer, um, I think for me it shouldn't matter who, who's behind. We all, the problem is you can ask any NPO, NGO, they will tell you that I have these programs that are amazing but I'm not able to implement them because of resources. Mm -hmm. Resources are key and are preventing us from implementing the programs that are going to be impactful to our society. Where are those resources? Do we have them? What do you mean, where are they? So, so, <laughs> it's, I think, as in, as in, so if, if people wanting to do the work, say the yes. challenge is resources, is mm. it that they don't know where to find them, they exist, but they, they uh, or they don't exist? So why is there that, that gap? Where are the resources? And there are funders out there, there are donor funders from everywhere, whether it's international or local. Mm -hmm. And as I said, it's a matter of knocking at the door, and if it opens... Do they have the appetite for the programs that you are proposing or that are in your proposal? Um, if they don't, then you knock at another door. Um, the funds, the donor funders are out there. You, you, you get anything from philanthropists, for instance, and um, people who would um, write up their wills to say, when I die, I need 5% you know, to go to such an organization because I believe in their cause. And some of them are sentimental in that uh, you'd find, like for instance, um, at an international level, Susan G. Komen Foundation, which is based in the U.S. You know, Susan G. Komen was formed because the, 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 the lady that is being honored there is the sister who died um, as a result of breast cancer. And therefore, that organization is now giving back um, to that particular cause of mm. breast cancer. Mm. So philanthropists are out there, the private sector is, is, is out there, and it's, as I said, it still is difficult despite. Mm. Um, so we have many challenges, many of them interdependent, they kind of link to each other. So public health is a poverty issue, education, you know, mm. it all links to the reality of the country. And for many people, there's a sense of, are these problems surmountable? Can we? Fix them because obviously they need 
you know, they won't fix themselves. Structural problems need structural reform, policy implementation, etc. Um, and also, obviously, what you were saying about collaboration. Mm-hmm. But that also requires a sense of optimism that we can actually deal with these issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you listen to the Auditor General and he speaks about, you know, these are the challenges, this is how we haven't met our targets because of A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. And there can be a sense of, of despondency or, or hopelessness. Certainly, us who deal with the media, we hear it quite a bit. Are you still optimistic in spite of all of the various challenges? Are you optimistic that we can, we can do what needs to be done? Mm, very much so. If I look back and reflect on how far the country has come from, I'd say, 10 years ago to be conservative, and now as a country, as South Africa, as much as we're still faced with other new challenges now uh, of um, the new infection rates, for instance, of HIV, I'll use that as an example, um, being affecting people between the age of 15 and 24. But if you look at the life expectancy, it has gone up. If you look at, as a country, we have, last September, um, we had an announcement that, you know, each and every person who's HIV positive will be on ARVs. Just uh, to treat. Yes, uh, as opposed to before, where, you, you know, our people had to wait for their um, viral load to reach a certain point or their CD4 count to drop to a certain level. Um, mother-to-child transmission is now becoming history because before, you know, so many children were born HIV positive. But today we're seeing um, it's dropped. For instance, in case that I was talking to another sister yesterday, it has dropped to 2%, and we're no longer even talking about prevention of mother-to-child transmission. We're talking about EMTCT, which is elimination of mother-to-child transmission. So we're getting to a point whereby, you know, we're we'll talking about eliminating. So there are many other that I can mention. I've just mentioned now HPV. I mean, back then, for me, in 2009, I never dreamt that we'd have girl children being vaccinated, you know, from grade four upwards and from the age of, of, of nine mm. um, upwards. I never dreamt of that. And that, for me, is another milestone that, we, that is worth being celebrated. Yes, there are other challenges that are there, but I think for me... Also, our challenges are evolving with time as we reach a milestone. So does it introduce other problems? And that is why, for me, it was important to say as much as as a country, it has focused on fighting and combating HIV AIDS to a point that it doesn't become a public health threat. But there are other now diseases, which are non-communicable diseases that we just spoke about, that are now going to claim that very same life if we don't take a holistic approach. In, in dealing with these diseases when we don't divide and say, I'm just going to look at the communicable, I'm not going to look at the non-communicable, but to look at them together. So I am positive. Is there anything you miss about being an ordinary <laughs> citizen before you were first lady? I know mm. Barack spoke about how he was excited to use, just before the end of his tenure, he was excited <clears throat> to use, I think it was a cell phone, mm-hmm. because he hadn't been allowed to have a smartphone because it needs to be encrypted, security, etc., um, and I think Michelle spoke about being able to hopefully drive because she hadn't been able to in, in over a decade. Is there anything now that you're part of the first family? Obviously, your movements are subject to you know security protocols, etc. Mm. The work of the foundation. Is there anything that perhaps you miss as <laughs> nor- from being normal, whatever normal is? Mm-hmm. Probably <laughs> any time. Just think about going to the movies. 
and getting those combos <laughs> with the kids. Have you not been to the movies since I you have, became I have, I have, but you think twice, you think, okay, uh, it's a, a bit of, you know, admin. Is it a, to, is to it a mission? It's not a mission per se, but I think for me to just think, okay, for the children in particular, um, well, we need to go to movies. You first need to think, I need to inform security. They need to first go and, and check and um, not that they're going to say no, but, you know, um, and then I need no? to go with them. They have sometimes. Really? Uh, yes. <laughs> then I have to go with the kids and security to the movies. So I think that level of freedom, but, you know, you try... In fact, for me, the way I look at it is to try and ensure that as much as you find yourself in this situation, don't let it influence you that much that, you know, it takes away your, your freedom completely. Mm-hmm. You still, I still have my freedom, but there are limitations, of Do you course. Drive? No. <laughs> you hesitated. <laughs> I would love to every day. Do you, do you drive and security knows about it? <laughs> Because there was a hesitation. I'll use my right to remain silent on that one. <laughs> so you do try. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> so is being part of the first family tough? Is it a tough... Because, I mean, you are connected to... And depending who you ask, the most loved, for some people, the most disliked man in the country, the most powerful person who has, you know, the fortunes of 53 million people kind of on his shoulders. Is that a tough, I mean, outside from the movies and the driving, is that a, a tough place, being the first family? So I think I'll answer that one in two ways. Um, I think it depends how you're looking at it. Because how I've approached life after finding myself in this, as you call it, first family, even though I don't look at it that way, I don't even think about it that way. Um, don't let it influence your internal settle, being at home and the way you get on with life and the way of thinking and, and not change who you are as a person or the person in you and, um, and just remain grounded and it's not tough, I wouldn't say it is tough um, it's also drawing a lot of positives out of it um, before I was involved you know, with charity work on a very um, a, a small scale mm-hmm. um, while still working in the private sector. You know, take a girl child to work is we started that and um, that was with Celsi and East Coast Radio in Deben and um, also the winter warmth campaign for the poor and those that during, you know, the winter season collecting the blankets, ensuring that, you know, we take it to those people that would be end beneficiaries. So for me, I've always been involved in charity work, but on a smaller scale. But now finding myself in this position, I have found that, oh, wow, now I can influence things on a bigger scale, touch lives in a way that I never thought I would. And that keeps me so busy that I don't really think about what you've just unpacked. It's only until you stop and a person says those things to you, do you go, do I really, Mm -hmm. you know, does it affect me? How much? Because for me, on a day-to-day basis, I'm so consumed by what I'm doing that, you know, when the day ends, I'm like racing against time. I'm thinking, no, I don't want 7 o'clock to come because I'm still busy in the office. There's still so much for me to do. Mm -hmm. And um, when it comes to society, I guess even as an ordinary person, 
you know, you still have Luyamama or Gamakilwain on Bugagabi. So I think for me, probably even that, using that as an example, it's now maybe on a bigger scale where there might be more of those. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, in society but also that doesn't as I said affect me that much because you know you sort of like create those walls around you mm-hmm. and, and protect yourself from being influenced by that because otherwise we would not do anything I'd be sitting and thinking about how many people dislike me how many people like me it wouldn't make life worth living have you always had that skill or did you learn it on the job <laughs> I've always had a way of getting by. I told you that in the beginning I would not take no for an answer mm-hmm. and I've never accepted being comfortable in a, uh, an environment where I feel my rights are violated in any way. I would rise above that and be vocal about it even if it means along the way, you know, you don't like me. Mm. As long as I feel strongly about it, but it's the how as well. Mm. But back then, before 1994, it wasn't about the how. When you're black and you're voicing, you know, your unhappiness, you already are an enemy. Mm-hmm. And you'll be marginalized and you'll be made to feel that you've now challenged authority and you shall pay. But even then. Is it getting easier for women to challenge authority? Because, of course, there's race, and particularly for black women, there's race, but also there's patriarchy. When you challenge authority, you're challenging lots of authority at the at the same time. Um, is it getting easier? Someone who you know has been in in a sector that needed and still needs to be quite transformed, as someone who works with women's issues, advocacy for women, do you find that it's getting better or easier? And maybe those two things aren't the same mm-hmm. for women to challenge power. It would get easier and better once our women are economically empowered because then they'll be given a voice because mm-hmm. then you can negotiate just about anything and everything and you can't tell me otherwise when I have economic power as a woman, you know what I mean. Um, at the moment we still are seeing, you know, transformation, you know, in that regard but until our women and our girl children are economically empowered, they'll be able to negotiate and stand their ground 